Well, the late newspaper editor William Randolph Hearst spent a fortune collecting art treasures from around the world. And one day he was reading through a book that mentioned a magnificent treasure that had been discovered, and Hearst decided he had to have it. So he called a curator, and he sent him out to discover and find where this treasure was and to purchase it. He said, spare no expense, I have to have it. And so this man went overseas, he searched around, and about a month later he called Hearst and he said, I've found the treasure. Wonderful, he said. Where is it? He said, you already have it. It's been in your warehouse all along. I think that far too many of us as Christians are a little bit like that, where we've been given immense treasures, immense wealth and a heavenly inheritance. And we have it, but we don't realize that we already possess it. As we turn in our Bible today to the second part of Ephesians chapter 1, what we're going to see is not only that God has given us immense uh, riches and blessings and power, but what Paul prays in Ephesians 1.15 and following is that we as believers would grasp and understand what it is that we already have. As we look at Ephesians 1, 15 through 16, it says, For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith of the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Now, as Paul says here, for this reason, what he's doing is pointing back to verses 3 through 14 that we've gone through. You'll recall that in verses 3 through 14, it was one single continuous sentence where Paul was laying out for us the great truth of how God the Father planned our salvation, and then God the Son provided our salvation, and finally we saw last week how God the Holy Spirit indwelt and sealed us and has provided uh, the power that we need as believers. And now in verses 15 through 23, what Paul does is he prays that we would be able to fully grasp all that God has given to us. As he does so, the words once again just flow out of Paul's pens because verses 15 through uh, 23 are, again, one single continuous sentence in the Greek text. And as Paul writes here, he, he writes a prayer, and it begins with praise. What he does is he commends the Christians in Ephesus for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then he commends them for their love that they have for each other. In John 13, 35, Jesus Christ said, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And the Ephesian Christians were those who had love. They were those who had come to understand God's great love. When we think in terms of who God is and what he did for us, we can picture uh, Christ leaving his throne in heaven to come to earth. He came here to ultimately go to the cross as a demonstration of his love, to die, to pay that penalty of sin that we owe. And as those who have received his great gift of love, we're to respond by showing love back to God. Understanding who he is and what he's done for us is what motivates us to love him. Uh, Not that we have to love him to get to heaven in the terms of being good and doing all kinds of great things. It's, It's rather an overflow, a response of the love we've already received. Now, it should not stop there. As we uh, understand who God is and as we love him, we should then in turn show love to one another. There are so many people who run around wearing crosses, and some of them are not even Christians. And we run around uh, wanting people to see that we're a believer. And for the Ephesian Christians in the first century, they didn't wear jewelry wearing a cross. That would be like us walking around with an electric chair Uh, gold pendant around our neck. It was a horrible sign of death in that day and still to this day. But we see it as it is redeemed through what Christ did for us. 
Instead, what people did is they demonstrated the love, and through that, people saw the cross of Christ. You know, it's easy for us to give lip service to God and say we love him whom we can't see, and then we fail to demonstrate love to those we can see who are around us. As Paul was writing to the Ephesian Christians here, he he says, you are showing love to one another. They were living out their love, which is why he says in verse 16, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Now, as we read those words, I want you to remember where Paul is. Remember that Paul is in a Roman prison. Paul had been the pastor of the church in Ephesus, as we saw in the book of Acts. He had been there for a period of about two years. But at this point, he's now in in Rome awaiting trial where he could die, die for his faith. And what he's doing is writing a letter back to the saints. And as he writes to them, and as he talks about his prayers, you, you would imagine that as Paul, if it were one of us sitting in that prison cell, what would we be writing? Would we be saying, would you please pray for me that I'm released? Would you pray that God preserves my life? I mean, what would our, our prayer here look like? For Paul, it was one of joy. It was one of thanksgiving. He said, as I hear about you, as I think about you, uh, just the praise and thanksgiving was rolling off his pen. He was uh, demonstrating what we see in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 7. There it says, rejoice always in everything. Give thanks for this is God's will for you. And right before he says that, it says, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. As you think about your prayer life, what does it look like? Is it more like the one of desperation where, God, this is what I want, this is what I need? Or is it one of thanks and praise where we say, God, let me, let me stop and focus on you and adore you. And thank you for the things that you're doing in my life. In the book, The Hiding Place, which was written by Cory Ten Boom, and uh, it was a story about her family. Cory Ten Boom was one whose family had gone through the, the horrible days of the, the Holocaust. And, and she was talking about one of the experiences that, that she had seen. Her family, as you'll recall, were Christians who had been saving Jews and hiding them. And, and her family was one who had hidden uh, people in the Jewish community and were eventually arrested and thrown into the prison camps themselves, facing death. And they smuggled in a Bible, and they were able to go around and share this as she, they were in the camps. And, and as they came to this new prison camp called Ravensbrook, it was the worst one they had been in yet. And as they were brought into the, where the barracks, uh, their, their new home, as they brought into these overcrowded flea-infested barracks, uh, their scripture reading that day was the one I just mentioned out of 1 Thessalonians 5. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And so Betsy said to Corey, we need to stop and give God thanks for every one of the circumstances of our new living arrangement. Now, Corey confesses. She said, I, I flatly refuse to do it. But Corey persisted and said, no, you, you, we need to thank God for everything. And she said when her sister continued to uh, press upon her to do this, she grudgingly gave thanks to God even for the fleas. Now she says later they were amazed to find that they were able to hold Bible studies and prayer meetings without fear of interruption from the guards. And all the other camps they had to have lookouts and be ready at the last moment as the guards would break into the barracks and try to catch people doing things. But she said they never came in the, in the barracks there. And it wasn't until later that they discovered that it was because of the fleas. Do you have any fleas in your life this morning? Do you have something going on that you're looking at it and you're saying, this is something I'm not going to thank God for? 
We don't always understand why the fleas may be there in our life. But we are called on to be those who who give thanks. I've given you an acronym before when it comes to prayer, ACTS. A-C-T-S. And we can take this acronym for prayer, and it stands for Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. These are four parts that we can have as we pray and talk to the Lord. Unfortunately, what many of us do, myself included at times, is jump right to the S of supplication, right? We go right to that shopping list of our needs. God, this is what I want you to do. This is what I need you to do for my friend or coworker or family member. But what God wants us to do is to stop and start at the top there. Start with adoration. We just spent time praising the Lord in song. And that sets your heart right. That prepares you to hear the word of God. And it's also something as believers we have the privilege of doing, adoring our Lord and Savior. And so as we adore God, it sets our mind and and it slows us down. It, it, It helps us to see God for who he is, how great he is, which then leads us to confession. Because as we picture and come into the presence of a holy God, we recognize our sinfulness. And God has, has forgiven us of our sins, but he, he tells us in First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God wants us to, to come with clean hands and hearts and confession. And then we come to thanksgiving. And the great thing about thanksgiving is when we remember the prayers that God has answered in the past, the good gifts that he's given to us, you know, you get to enjoy it a second time, don't you? The first time when you receive it and the second time as you linger over it and remember and tell God thank you. And that also helps with supplication because in those times where you're saying, where is God? Why haven't I heard from him? Why hasn't he answered my prayers? We can look back at all the past prayers he has answered. And it, and it's, it, it reminds us that he is a good God, a good father who wants to give good gifts to us. As we think of this idea of thanksgiving, there was a man by the name of Dr. David Soper. He wrote a book called God is Inescapable. And in it, he observes that the difference between a prison and a monastery is the difference between griping and gratitude. The difference is between griping and gratitude. He says, imprisoned criminals spend every waking moment griping, while self-imprisoned saints spend every waking moment offering thanks. But then he says, when a criminal becomes a saint, a prison may become a monastery. But when a saint gives up gratitude, a monastery can become a prison. As you look at your life this morning, which one describes you? Do you live in a prison or a monastery? As you approach God, as you think about him, as you look at life just in general, is it filled with gratitude? When you wake up in the morning, is, is the first thought in your mind, do you say, good morning, Lord? Or do you go, good Lord, it's morning? There was a man who said, I used to gripe when I had to get out of bed. And he said, but then one day I couldn't get out of bed. As we look at our lives, as we look at what God has done for us, he wants us to live with with gratitude rather than grumbling. You know, Paul was a guy who could have grumbled. We've seen his resume, the shipwrecks, the beatings, the stonings, the imprisonments, facing death, on and on. He, He was a guy who could have easily filled pages grumbling. But instead, we see him here writing about God's grace and giving thanks for those who are living according to that grace. As we read what Paul wrote, he wants us to grasp that full measure of all that God's given to us. 
He says in verse 17 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, notice that as Paul prays for them here, it's not the prayers or the preaching that we sometimes hear. These prosperity preachers say, God wants you to be rich. And friends, he does. But it's not with the worldly wealth that some of these people try to promise you. The riches that he wants us to have here are wisdom and knowledge of what God has revealed to us. When it comes to knowing God, the atheist says, you know, there is no God that we can know. The agnostic says, well, if there is a God, we can't know him. But Paul says, there is a God, and we can know him. We can know him personally. Paul was one who encountered the resurrected Lord on the road to Damascus. Paul was one who knew about God, and he wants us to know him personally and intimately. God, friends, is not some distant creator. He's not some angry God that we have to do things to appease. He's one who wants us to know him as father, friend, savior, as guide. Last week we saw the Holy Spirit seals and indwells us. He ministers and comforts and intercedes for us. He, he's, he's our power source and our guide. And one of the ways the Holy Spirit guides us is through his word called the Bible. The Bible was superintended. It was written by the Holy Spirit through the pens of men as God directed them. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. When you read that word inspired, it's the Greek word pneuma. Pneuma means spirit, wind, or breath. And what it literally tells us is the word of God that you hold in your hands or are looking at on your phone this morning uh, is God-breathed. He's the author. He's the one uh, that gave it to us. He's the one who teaches us and helps us to apply it in our lives. Jesus told the disciples in John 14, 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Now, while God is doing these things, we have a part in it too. We have a responsibility to be actively involved in, in learning and, and being in his word and benefiting from it. Let me illustrate it this way. For years, I've, I've been driving to Wayside Chapel the same way. I travel, you know, I have two ways I usually come here, and uh, both of the ways I go, I pass a fitness center. And I, I can tell you, I don't know how those two places have stayed in business all these years because I don't, I don't think they do any good at all. I mean, look at me. I've been driving by those places for years, every single day. And it's not doing any good. Now, I know there's some personal trainers here, and you're going to come up with your car, and you're going to pump you up, Roger. You don't understand how these places work. See, it's not enough just to drive by and look at it. And it's not even good enough if you come in and you walk in and go, wow, this is a really neat place. I like those weights and admire them and say, oh, look at those people working out. It's great. You don't benefit that way, do you? You have to get on the machine. You have to pump the weight. You have to do the work. And it's the same way sometimes for us. We say, well, Roger, you know, I drive by churches. I even come in here occasionally and kind of admire the people and what's going on. I have a Bible at home. It's right there on my, you know, table. And I walk by it. I drive by. You know, God, we're not drive-by believers. We have to get in God's word. 
And as we go through God's word, we have to let it go through us as well. It's not enough just to say, well, I read a passage. I looked at what it said. God wants us to apply it in our lives. To really benefit, we have to spend time in it and let it impact us. I mean, think about the people you know best. Is it that person you met one day in line at the store where you said, nice to meet you, and they walked away? Or the people you really know, the ones that you spend time with, that you do life with, that you call or text or talk to, and you share your joys as well as your trials and your grief. It's the people that you do life with. It requires time. It requires time with that individual to develop. And it's the same thing with God. As we look at who God is, and, and, and he wants us to have this, this knowledge of who he is, Paul uses a, a word that we're going to come to in verse 17. It's the Greek word epigenosis. It literally means the fullness of knowledge through personal acquaintance or experience. There's a Greek word gnosis, knowledge. The Gnostics were those who said, hey, we've got lots of information. But epigenosis means to have a personal knowledge. Now, as I talk about knowing God and spending time with him and and living our lives out for him, I don't want you to make the mistake of thinking that I'm telling you that's how you get to heaven. That if you go to church enough, if you give enough money, if you're good enough and you do enough good deeds that, that you'll earn your way to heaven. Paul makes abundantly clear that that's not the case. Remember, the Holy Spirit who's guiding Paul will have him write in just a few verses in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one should boast. As he's talking about knowing God here, what he says is, I want you to know who God is and what he did for you. And what he did for us is demonstrated at the cross. Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. As we come to understand God coming to earth to take our place and we respond in love to him and love to one another. This is, this is the picture Paul is painting here. He loves us just like we are, friends, but he loves us too much to leave us like we are. We're to grow in our faith. Later in the letter, Paul will say in Ephesians 4.13 that as we come to Christ and as we're growing in our walk, he says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. He says, you just keep looking and growing and growing and growing. That's what God wants us to look like. God's desire is to see us move to maturity in Christ, both as individual believers and collectively as the body of Christ that make up the church. Now, as I said, to grow in him, that means we need to spend time with him. It's why he says in verse 17, his prayer is for us to have a knowledge of God. And then he goes on to say in verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of his glory? What are the riches of of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now, when you see that word hope there, it's not like, you know, kids at Christmas or their birthday. My kids will come to me sometimes, you know, they're dropping hints when a birthday's coming, and they'll say, well, you know, I, I hope I get this, this uh, present. It's kind of that wishful thinking, right? That's not what hope is in the Scripture. Hope is the assurance the assurance of what is God has promised. C.D. Moore, a Greek scholar, defines hope, the word that is used here, as faith standing on its tiptoes. Isn't that a beautiful picture? 
It's standing on its tiptoes. It's peering forward. It's looking. It, it has this hope of what is to come, the promise. The Bible defines faith for us in Hebrews 11.1. 1. It, says, it says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's not wishful thinking. We have this assurance, a conviction, a knowledge it's going to happen. But there's this hope of what is to come. There was a Baptist preacher one day who was out doing visitation. And he was with uh, a deacon from his church. And as they were going uh, door to door, they came to a, a fairly affluent neighborhood. And as they were walking to this one house, it was an estate and the gates were open. And they go walking up the, the driveway. And as they're coming up the driveway, they see two very expensive cars there in the, in the driveway. And they kind of admire them as they walk by. Uh, they come under the portico where there's a, a, you know, another very expensive vehicle, and there's this picture window. And they, they, they can look in, and they see a, a man sitting there very nicely dressed. He's in an overstuffed leather chair, beautiful furnishings and, and decorations inside the house. He's watching a, a giant uh, big-screen TV. They come to the door. It's very ornate. And uh, as the, the deacon's about to knock on the door, he turns to the pastor, and he says, do we have any good news or hope to offer this guy? I think sometimes that's how we view things in the world, isn't it? We know people who have everything the world could offer, fame, power, fortune. And sometimes as Christians, we, we feel like, well, what, what hope can we offer to somebody who has it all? Well, what I want to remind y'all is that what the world offers us is passing. You may be even one of those people I'm talking about who are here this morning saying, you know, I, I, I really don't need God in my life. I've got everything I need. I've got everything to make me comfortable. But there is a day coming when your life will come to an end. Here at Wayside, in the last three weeks, we've had five funerals. And thankfully, every one of them have been a believer. And as I've done those funerals, I've been able to offer the hope of eternity that is coming. And as we look to the future, as Paul is writing to those in Ephesus, I want you to remember what the city of Ephesus looked like. When we began this series, we talked about Ephesus. It was one of the largest cities in that day. It was a place of immense culture and wealth. Remember that the temple of Artemis was there. The temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a major banking center. It was a place of immense treasure. Uh, the people in Ephesus were, were those that you could say they didn't really need God. If you go to Ephesus today, you know what you'll find? Ruins. The splendor is gone. The glory is gone. The wealth is, is, is no longer there. You just have a bunch of ruins. And whatever it is that you have that you're looking at and saying, I have everything I need, I want to remind you that the stuff the world offers us is fleeting and passing. But if we turn to Jesus Christ, he gives us both the gift of eternal life as well as all the heavenly blessings that come with it. And those blessings are not just for when we get home to heaven. They're also for what happens while we live our lives here. In 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, we're told, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, 
reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Something else that is offered to us as believers is there in verse 19. It says, And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. Now, as we read that in the English, it's easy to miss what is there. So I want to just slow down a moment and unpack what Paul is, is telling us here. If you're using the New International Version of the Bible, uh, you see there it's translated as uh, God, what he offers us is inc- incomparably great, incomparable. The word literally means to throw beyond a mark. To throw beyond a mark. So what that means is think your greatest thought of the greatest stuff you can ever imagine. And that's your mark. And God kind of laughs at us and he says, guess what? The biggest, best thing you could ever imagine, what I've got for you is beyond that. It means to throw beyond the mark. Paul then uses four Greek words here. The first word is dynamis, which is translated as power. This is where we get our English words dynamic or dynamite. It speaks of potential power that is there. The next word that is translated as working is energia. This is where we get our word energetic. It describes active energy. Now, the next word here is kratos. It's translated as strength or dominion. It describes power that overcomes resistance. It's used to extol God's power and dominion over everything. God's power and dominion over everything. That includes our foe, Satan. The Bible tells us he's the prince of the power of the air. We live in a world that is, that is under the, the thumb of sin. And sometimes as Christians, we think, you know, what's going on in the world? Who's in control? God is. He has power and dominion even over the, the worldly principalities. And the last word is iskis, which is translated as might. It's used to speak of inherent strength. Now, that's a bunch of words to throw at you. So I want to bring them together and help you get a a true picture of what God is talking about for us. I want you to picture in your mind a bulldozer. You have a picture of a bulldozer in your mind? Now, I know some of you are probably picturing one of those little bobcats, right? I've I've, I've been in several different kinds of bulldozers when I did street and work construction. And, you know, those bobcats are fun. They kind of bounce around. You can do a lot of things. Uh, Some of you have even rented them and and used them yourself. But that's not a good picture. This is what I want you to think about. Okay, because as we're talking about the type of power here, and as I'm using a bulldozer for an illustration, it has to be something massive like this. And, And to understand what is being described here, that bulldozer has ability, capacity, and potential to take down uh, gigantic trees and move boulders. That's dunamis, okay? Now, as you compare the bulldozer there to the men that you see in the picture, they're tiny in comparison, which gives you an idea of the inherent strength. That's iscus. And then as you look at it, if you could put yourself there at that moment as that machine is working, you would hear the roar of the engine. You would literally feel the ground shaking. And that that would be Kratos, the mastery and power that is there. And when it levels a large tree or moves a boulder out of the way, that's energia because we see the activity of its power. 
And this is the picture that Paul paints for us. As he says, as believers, this is what we've been given. We, we have this divine, dynamic, eternal energy that's available to us. Later in the letter, he's going to say in Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think according to the power that works within us. Set your mark and throw it beyond. That's what he's telling you. Now, last week in verses 13 through 14, we saw how we as Christians have been indwelt and sealed by the Holy Spirit. We have God himself resident within us. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, And do you not know that your body is a temple of the Lord and the Spirit of God dwells within you? We have this power of God available and resident in us. In Acts 1.8, Jesus said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Remember that as Christ wrote that, we saw in the book of Acts, they were a, a, a scared little group huddled in a room. Christ had just been crucified on a cross, buried. They thought it was all over. They were wondering what happened. And suddenly this group that was hiding and shaking in fear was out in the streets and spreading throughout the world, spreading the good news of the gospel, not fearing imprisonment or death or anything else because they had received the power and presence of God. God gives to us what we need, but too many of us are leaving it unused. Let me illustrate it this way. In a little bit, you guys are all going to go out into the parking lot. Y'all are going to get to your cars. You're going to take your key and open it, and you're going to sit down in the car and either push a starting button or turn a key. And then you're going to put your car in, uh, in drive and take off. Now, if we were to do what some of us are doing as believers, what we're going to do is we're going to walk out, of the park, out to the parking lot, we're going to go to our car, we're going to open the door, we're going to get in and shift our car into neutral, and then we're going to get out of the car, not starting it, and we're going to instead start pushing it down the road. Now, I used to own a car like that, so I, I, I know what that's like. Maybe you do too. But there's not going to be a long line of us trying to push our cars down the street. We'd go, Roger, who would do that? Because we know if we get in and we turn the car on and we, we, we push the gas pedal, that car is going to go. We're going to harness the power that is available to us. But so many of us are living our lives as bicycle believers. Where we say, I got to pedal and, you know, I got to do it all myself. It's all dependent upon me. When instead, what God says is, I want you to be Cadillac Christians. I want you to have a top of the line model that you get in and you enjoy and you drive down the road. Now, I know we're here in Texas. Some of y'all are going, Roger, I don't drive no Cadillac. I'm a truck guy. I got to pick up out there too. So if, if, if you don't like the image of a Cadillac Christian, then call yourself, th think of one of those monster trucks that's jacked up, dualies, a huge Hemi under the engine, and call yourself a monster minister instead. <laughs> All right? So you're going to get in and you're going to take advantage of what is there. And that's what Paul is praying for us this morning, brothers and sisters. He's saying, would you understand what God has for you and would you start living your lives according to it? See, the problem for most of us is not that our gas tanks are empty. The problem is we're just not taking advantage of what God has given to us. That's the problem that Paul wants us to, to see. As believers, God's power is available to us. And what God's power does for us is it helps us to live our lives and love him. And as you think of this power, I don't think you've quite gotten a, a good enough picture 
You're thinking of that, that bulldozer and a, and a huge hemi as a monster minister, but I want you to see just how great God's power is in verses 20 through 23. It says, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but in also in the one to come. And he put things in subjection under his feet, and he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The power of God conquered sin and death. It overcame the grave. It raised him from the dead. It exalted him into heaven. It has given him the place of dominion and authority above all. It's the power that defeated Satan in the past, in the present, and it will in the future when he is thrown into the abyss for the thousand-year millennial kingdom and then when he's ultimately thrown into the lake of fire. Brothers and sisters, we do not have to fear our foe, Satan. God has given us what we need to live our lives and to overcome him. That's the power that's available to us. It helps us to know and love God as well as one another. It helps us to to share the good news of the gospel. It helps us to live our lives not in conformity to our old dead way of sin like the walking dead. It's what helps us to to live our lives as as redeemed people. Do you remember what we saw in Ephesians 1-7 where it said we've been redeemed? We've been set free. We've been bought off the slave market. We've been set free. That word apolutrosin, that means that we we have been set free. Never uh, ex agarazzo that we talked about. Never again to be sold back into slavery. This is what he wants us to grasp. Let me leave you with the final illustration. Imagine for a moment that where you lived is in an apartment complex. And many of you are going, well, that's where I do live. Okay, great. So you're living in an apartment, and the landlord who owns your building uh, is a mean and uh, just, just a bad person, charges you exorbitant rent, doesn't fix anything, is constantly uh, on you about things, barges into your place when, when they're not supposed to, and as you're paying this exorbitant rent, as you're living there in misery, uh, you, you can't keep up with the bills. And so the landlord says, fine, I'm going to dock you late fees and I'm going to put uh, interest charges at a, at a usurious rate upon you. And you're growing farther and farther into debt, more and more under this person's control. They now start coming into your place whenever they want, day or night. They, they make a mess when they're in there. They tear things up, and then they turn around and charge you for damages to the place. And, and you're, you're just going, I'm miserable. I'm a slave uh, to this person. And as you're there and you're hopeless, suddenly one day um, you hear that somebody has come in and bought the building. And this new owner comes and knocks on the door, and they say to you, listen, um, I bought the building. And I bought all the debt that was owed uh, by you to the previous landlord, and I've forgiven it. You're free and clear. You owe nothing. And in fact, you're allowed to continue to live here rent-free. And I want you to know that I'm going to be living uh, right here with you in the manager's apartment right here next door. If you need anything, you just call. I'm here uh, for you to help and serve any way I can. How are you feeling at the moment? You've suddenly been set free. You're no longer under the bondage of this old uh, landlord. And so, you know, you're, you're, you're feeling great. But as soon as the, the new owner disappears, there's a, 
It's knock at the door, and you recognize the knock because it's a pounding that you used to hear all the time. And you go and you open the door, and who's standing there? It's the old landlord. And he's just as mean as he's ever been, and he says to you, I'm here for the rent. <laughs> and you kind of go, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I met the new owner. Uh, I know the new owner now. We're friends. Uh, and he, he says, I don't owe you anything anymore. You don't have any claim on me. You need to go away. Now, you know the old landlord, who's Satan in this illustration, isn't going to give up easily. He's going to say, oh, no, 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 we had a past agreement. You, know, you, made, you made agreements with me, and you owe me, and all this, and, and so pay up. Are you going to pay the rent? Or are you going to say, uh, you know, I think you need to talk to the new owner. Are you going to call the new owner to come over and, and let them know that this person no longer has a claim on you? Or are you going to go back and be a slave to sin? And start paying this, this old landlord. Friends, that's the picture that Christ has given to us. As we've been bought and paid for by the blood of Christ, as we've been indwelt and have the Holy Spirit as the new owner living within us, as the one who says we, we are no longer slaves to the old landlord, we now belong to Christ, we've been adopted into the family. We have no obligations to our old way of life, so he says quit paying the rent to your old landlord. Start living in the freedom that I've given you. Start living your life in a way that experiences the, the joy and the power that I have for you. Now, it may be that there's somebody here this morning who's not yet been set free from the old landlord. You're still owing that debt of sin. You, you, you are still under the bondage that comes because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. You owe a penalty because of the way you've lived your life. We're all sinners. We've all made mistakes. And because of that, we all owe a penalty. But for those who come to Christ, those who turn from their sins and to him as their Savior, what the Bible says is we no longer owe that, that penalty because Christ paid it in full. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're here today and you've never received that great gift of new life, if you've never accepted Jesus' gift of grace and been set free, you can do so this morning. I'm going to end our time with a prayer. I'm going to give you an opportunity to turn to Christ. You don't have to walk the aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. But what you do have to do is in the, the privacy of your own heart and mind, you have to make a decision today. Do you want to turn from your old dead way of life into the Lord of life who offers you not just eternal life, but the power to live free in this life? If you want to do that, then Christ says to you and me today, then he says through Paul's pen in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you'd like to receive that great gift of life, then I invite you to pray this prayer with me. Dear Lord, I'm a sinner. I've made mistakes in my life, and because of that, I recognize I owe a penalty. A penalty of sin called death. I thank you, Jesus, that you loved me so much that you left heaven and you came to earth. That you took my place as you went to the cross and paid that penalty of death that I owe. I believe, Lord Jesus, that you rose from the dead three days later. 
that the power that we've been talking about today brought you from the grave into uh, a resurrected state that you want me to have as well, to be free from death. And so, Lord Jesus, today I turn to you as my Savior. I accept your gift of new life. Help me to live my life for you out of love and out of an understanding of the, the freedom I now have as a son or a daughter of yours. I pray these things in the name of my Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, I'm going to be at the front after the service along with other prayer leaders. We would love to talk to you. We'd love to make sure you understand that first step that you just took to become a believer in Christ. And then we want to help you to grow in your newfound faith in Christ. For the rest of us who already belong to Jesus, for the rest of us who are believers, as we walk out of the doors today, you're not going to push your car down the road. So quit living your life as a bicycle believer. Instead, live your life as one who understands that as a Cadillac Christian or a monster minister, you have that power resident and available to you, and that's how he wants us to live. Will you stand, please, as we sing this closing song of worship?